0: In the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, amen. In the, name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, amen. All right, we are continuing our journey. Into anthropology, kind of doing our best last week, or last time on Monday, uh, establishing the basis of adequate anthropology, looking at the human person with the capacity for God, uh, with that being created in Imago Dei, and also understood in relationship to Jesus Christ, who is the Imago Dei, is the image of God. What I want to do, though, is is in looking at anthropology, as I said, most of y'all have already covered um, basic ideas of intellect and will, which we're going to talk a little bit more about today in the second class, and these different elements that come into the moral life, but one of them that I want to address sort of indirectly today are the role of the passions in the moral life. Um, passions are emotions, even though they are not necessarily equivalent. Aquinas has a section on the passions in the summa in the moral life, and so does the catechism, number 1763 to 1766. Um, and they're crucial because we're not just, again, I think that's sort of that Kantian deontological approach of, well, I have this duty to do it, I'm going to make this moral choice regardless of how I feel about it, and I'm going to be sort of detached and disinterested. We're not that way as humans. Um, the catechism will say in 1763, the term passions belongs to the Christian patrimony. Feelings are passions or emotions or movements of the sensitive appetite that incline us to act. Or not to act in regard to something felt or imagined to be good or evil. Now, we can take a very sort of Thomistic approach of systematizing the irascible desires and all of these different types of understandings of the passions. I, however, am not necessarily going to go in that direction. I want to take a broader view of it as you'll see today Why? They are the natural components of the human psyche. They form the passageway and ensure the connection between the life of the senses and the life of the mind. And so, as we'll see, that they are morally neutral in themselves, um, but can be and need to be controlled by the reason and the will, but not so much that we repress them or we don't feel them. We should be passionate. We should have a healthy emotional life. And the catechism will go on to talk about the different types of passions, such as love, um, apprehension of evil, causes hatred, aversion, fear of impending evil, all these different movements. Um, I'm not going to get into this delineation, nor am I going to say that somehow they're movements of the soul. Uh, Y'all can get into that in your philosophical ethics. I think we realize a lot of passions come from neurochemistry in the brain. Uh, I'm not trying to take a reductionistic view of the human person, uh, but I want to look at it today on a human level, and then in the next lesson to really see how it does play into the moral life. What, are, Let's say specific moral choices, that's going to be our next lesson. Uh, today I want to look at something more fundamental, which is not so much of what the emotions are or what the passions are, but a broader integration of the emotional life and of emotions into our life as humans and therefore leading into a healthy moral life, but particularly in its connection to our own identity and self-image. This is the first time I have kind of taught this class, I, most of what I've taught already, I've taken and edited it. I've had these ideas before, but I'm teaching it in a, I'm, a lot of what you're going to hear me say, I've said before, but in the way I'm trying to teach it. So you give me a little leeway as I'm trying to keep my thoughts organized. Um, so we're going to look at emotions. We're going to kind of get to that at the end. What does a healthy, integrated emotional life look like? But I want to establish the basis of how on a human level these emotions act so that when we start talking about the supernatural organism and how grace interacts with and perfects our human nature. But here's where I want to start. The second part of the great twofold commandment. Love your God with all your heart, your mind, and your soul, all of that great stuff. What is the second one? We've talked about love your neighbor, but there's another part we haven't talked about yet. As yourself love your neighbor as yourself and I think it's that second part Oh love your neighbor great I'm gonna love my neighbor but we're supposed to love our neighbor in the same way that we love ourselves what does healthy self-love look like without turning into narcissism or coming up with some personality disorder or what I say at the time, always worry about being prideful. Oh, I'm being prideful because i'm 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 doing something for myself. No. You, you have to be able to have boundaries. You have to be able to set limits. This is what a, a holy uh, good moral life looks like. We're gonna talk a little bit about that uh, a little bit later on, hopefully today um, in our discussions, even though, could be a much broader a broader <clears throat> discussion but really here realizing that having a healthy self-love is necessary for having a healthy moral life why because if the moral life can really be reduced to loving god and neighbor if you don't love yourself if you hate yourself If you're filled with shame and insecurity, you're not going to be able to fulfill the commandments to love, and you're not going to really have a great moral life. Does that make sense? And so this is why integration, this is why affirmation, this is why a healthy self-love is important. And from my experience as a priest, not only in dealing with people, dealing with myself, and dealing with other priests, people who do not love themselves in a healthy way make life miserable for themselves and for other people, particularly if you are a priest. Let's go back to our discussion from a few days ago, the difference between being a disciple and being something else. It often goes back to that. It often goes back to that. So again, this would be more like, I guess, of a a psychology class. But how do I found it? What is the the foundation for a healthy self-love? What is the foundation if you could fra- put it into one phrase <clears throat> what's that say- uh, no even though that's valuable no so I'm looking at I'm looking for something more not so spiritual just valuable. okay we're gonna get to that but I'm looking for one phrase Wait, you, uh, well, close Self-identity. close one more phrase do you want to take a shot True. I'm afraid gonna, I'm gonna to. I'm gonna put. It, all this is true. It's this. It is good that you exist. It is good that you exist. It is good that I exist. We as humans need to hear that. It's good that you exist. I think you could sum it up from a human psychological foundation. Our existence in the world needs to be affirmed by others. This is so, so again, it's not good that I, we need to be able to say eventually it's good that I exist. But in order to say it's good that I exist, we've got to be able to hear it's good that you exist. And from the youngest age, we've got to be told this. Because we ultimately, as we'll see, cannot affirm ourselves. So this, this, it is good that you exist is an affirmation of our existence. So you're going to hear me bring up this word a lot, affirmation. It's good that you exist as the essential human psychological affirmation. And if you read some of the, the, the stuff that I, 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 I told you to read from Ratzinger, he talks about this. Beautiful stuff. You wouldn't expect that coming from Ratzinger. Of ourselves, we cannot come to terms with ourselves. Our I becomes acceptable to us only if it has first become acceptable to another I. We can love ourselves only if we have first been loved by someone else life of a mother the life a mother gives to a child is not just physical life she gives total life when she takes the child's tears and turns them into smiles it's beautiful potentially stole that from somebody but we're gonna see that in a second it is only when life has been accepted and is perceived as accepted that it becomes also acceptable man is that strange creature that needs not just physical birth but also appreciation if he is to subsist. If y'all are interested, Dr. Conrad Bars, who sort of put up together his own idea as a Catholic philo- psychologist, his daughters are extending his legacy now, of sort of this Thomistic psychology and a theory of uh, affirmation. And Neurosis agrees. You, you can't affirm yourself. Back in the 70s, you know, look in the mirror. I'm a good person. I am wonderful. You can't do that. It's not bad. Necessarily. No, you know, some of you may remember Saturday Night Live, Stuart Smalley. I am good enough. I, you know, or what is it? Dosh, like garnet people like me. Look at that. We got somebody else. Uh, Doc, do you remember that? Yeah. <laughs> or or, or Lank, what was the guy that Michael Myers had won? Lank something. Oh, I'm a handsome man. <laughs> Those some classic SNL stuff there from the late 80s. Um, But it can't just come with words. Y'all can go, look up Stuart Smalley. um, um, Al Franken played him. And then blank something or other, I'm a Handsome Man by Mike Myers. But it can't just come with, with words. Oh, I affirm your existence. You're good. It has to come with actions from another person. Ratzinger, again, if an individual is to accept himself, someone must say to him, it is good that you exist must say it not with words but with that act of the entire being that we call love. For it is a way of love to will the other's existence and at the same time to bring that existence forth again. The key to the, the I lies with the thou. The way to the thou lo- leads to the I. So basically, you've got to not just hear that you are loved, but you've got to be loved. So another way that we could phrase this is not just it's good that you exist, but you are loved and lovable. You are loved and lovable, and it leads us to believe that I am loved and lovable. Now, where is this primarily going to be done? Yes. We'll, we'll have... I mean, you may get
1: to it. I um, mean, <coughs> people have different ways of being
0: loved. There's a love language for each person. I mean, I have my own. You have your own. I think that enters into. it. Do you not agree? Oh yeah, it does. I, but I, I, yeah. correct. Yeah, it does. Um, we're going to get to that in little a little bit. Uh, because right now, oh, we're trying. I'm trying to establish kind of a foundation. Of yes, we all have our love language, but where is it most important that this foundation is laid? At the home. At the, as a child, as a baby. So when you are a baby in your mom's arms, you have no idea what your love language is. Your love language is generally touch and nurturing, um, but it's primarily going to be done in the home by the parents, ideally. And so this is the importance of family of origins. You know that the. the We are humans. We come from somewhere. And and not that we are not free beings, but where we come from, the the way we were loved or not loved, we were accepted or neglected, affirmed or not affirmed, matters. And, And actually studies show it begins in the womb. Kids in the womb have this some crazy sense to know if the mom wants them or if they're loved or unlovable. And that's what they talk about, like talking to your kids when it's, they're in the womb. If parents are fighting, the kid's going to come out probably with a higher chance of anxiety. We know this because we're not just pure intellects. We're humans. We have a body. We have an epidermis. We, 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 we receive so much input in ways that we probably don't even understand. And so we're affirmed in our existence by that love, and it has to be an unconditional love. Not for what we do, but for who we are. It's good that you're here, even if you are weak, even if you're a sinner. Even when you make mistakes and do terrible things, I still love you. I may want you to change. You may have to clean up, prodigal son, before you can come in the house but you're still loved and lovable. Nothing you're going to do is going to make me stop loving you. Nothing. And so this acts as a foundation for our ability to love others. We've got to love ourselves. I I, I will say, though, again, as I may have mentioned in class before, some, I've worked enough with people who say, well, Father, yeah, I know that, but my parents, they loved me, but they had to love me. They don't like me. We talked about this before. Parents don't like me. They're, I'm a burden to them. Well, and that's when I came to really realize that there's got to be another level. Not only do parents love me as a duty, but they have to like me, but delight in me. They enjoy my presence. I may have told some of you all this, or again. I've been doing this mission and all my different talks and things that I've done over the past few weeks and months are all blended together. They did this poll, sorry about the poll they did amongst kids who are athletes, and they found out asked them what is what is the thing that your parents tell you that means the most? And you'd think, Oh, you did a great job, you hit home wrong. No. I love to watch you play. I just love to watch you play. You're not having to achieve anything. Oh, you know, because you see these fights of these parents getting picking fights with the umpires because the kids aren't performing well enough. No, that's what means the most to the kids because they have enough pressure on them already. Their parents delight in them. The most beautiful image of this though, again, Ratzinger alluded to it, but it actually comes from, and I don't know who got it first, it actually comes from von Balthasar. And this is one of my favorite quotes from him. He says, and he talks about the smile of a mother. After a mother has smiled at her child for many days and weeks, she finally receives her child's smile back in response. She is awakened in the heart of her child. And as the child awakens to love, it also awakens to knowledge. The initially empty sense impressions gather meaningfully around the core of the vow. This person loves me. I am an individual. So here it is. The, the smile of the mother is not saying, oh, baby, I love you, because the baby doesn't even understand it. But I love you because I smile at you. Do you know how, how useful babies are? They're useless. Okay, they're useless. They may make you feel better if you're sad, but they, they don't produce anything. They produce poo. That's about it. And pee. There's no utility to children. That's why they're, they're cute, so you don't discard them. <laughs> true. It's good. This is why we evolved to be cute. Um, not that we should discard babies, but you get what I'm trying to say. <laughs> the, the, it's the mom affirming and receiving the complete existence of the baby. So it's like love, but love is this receptivity, this acceptance of the other. I, And then the child allows itself to be received. Of course, we're getting back into all of this idea of childhood. But notice also the gaze of the mother. The the mom looks at the kid. The kid looks at the mom. They're making eye contact. Oh, this is my mom. She loves me for who I am, even though I'm pooping on her and spitting up on her. I think another great image would be the father, if you were ever... I want to make a, a group of? If you're talking about like college girls or, or young women, have a, a, group, a picture of a, a, a man, like a father, holding the little bitty baby. Oh, they will love that. But here it is: this strong man holding their kid, the father. So there's a sense of protection, a sense of safety. Because that's where it comes. It's ideally done in the context of a home. Home is where we're seen, on and loved, but where we feel safe. I'm at home. I can be myself. I'm protected. We belong. If there's not a sense of safety, if your parents aren't there, if you're always roaming around, no. But I also think it's also important, and this is maybe highlighting something we're gonna talk about later, it has to be a place where you can exhibit your emotions, where you're free to, to there may be repercussions for your choices, but the damage that I have a priest have seen of parents who tell their boys, don't cry, or their girls, be tough and don't cry, particularly crying. You've got to be able to control your emotions, your anger and whatnot, but you can't have it so repressed that it ends up coming out later on. We have to find healthy ways to integrate and show our emotions. Do not ever tell someone that they can't show an emotion because you start bringing in shame for that. No. But ultimately, it's where our identity is formed. In and through our parents, from a very, very young age, the the foundation is laid, and it's built on as we get older. And this is our foundation for our identity as beloved sons or daughters. We know, we know this, that those who grow up with stable families are more likely to be secure in their identity. It builds a a human foundation for grace to build on, where there's this trust in in your parents that leads to a trust in God as a loving father, where you grow up feeling respected, to respectare, uh, I'm seen, spectare, I'm seen, I'm, I'm noticed, and therefore people who respect themselves, who love themselves are going to respect others. They're going to see others. They're not going to be clawing for attention. Remember the traits we talked about, the person who's confident in their identity, who generally comes from a good home background. And even if you don't, you can build up on this, as we'll talk about a little bit later. They're confident, secure, and free to love. They know who they are. And from this, another trait on a human level is joy. And Ratzinger talks about this. I was like, oh man, Ratzinger writes a lot about joy. Well, come to find out, there's a whole book about him and joy. Some guy's thesis, it looked like, just about joy and the thought of Ratzinger. You can't get it in the library now because I have it checked out, but maybe when I put it back in. It's the foundation of spiritual childhood, our human childhood, allowing yourself to be received, entering the kingdom of heaven, knowing your identity. But all of this stuff that we receive from our parents and, yeah, okay, ultimately that we receive from others is all a reflection of God the Father's love. We're all called to, to be the Father, to image the Father's love. And, we, and and as a result is that principle of mediation, I think, is so important. A kid who comes... To the parent and says, mom, dad, I, I'm feeling bad today, I've hurt myself, no one loves me, or is a parent going to say, I want you to go in your room and pray to Jesus and God so that you can know that you're loved? No, you're going to hug your child or else you're a loser, deadbeat parent. Why? Because you are the channel of God the Father's love. Why are we so insistent on just forcing people to go get it directly? That's not the way it works. If that's the way God wanted, it, if that's the way God wanted to do it, the Bible would be very short. There'd be no prophets, because God would just speak directly to people. They wouldn't even have a Bible, because that's mediated Himself. He chooses to mediate His Word. He chooses to mediate His healing through the sacraments. He chooses to mediate His love through others. He chooses to mediate His gaze through others. Probably given him before, but I'll give it again. My favorite quote from Father Jacques Philippe We urgently need the mediation of another's eyes to love ourselves and accept ourselves. Those eyes may be of a parent, a friend, a spiritual director, but above all, they are those of God the Father. The look in his eyes is the purest, truest, tenderest, most loving, and most hope filled in the world. I'm not giving up on you. We communicate that. Parents essentially really communicate it to their kids. That's a great examination of conscience. How am I doing in mediating the love of God to other people that I see? This is the, the, the root of the twofold commandment. Yes, well. It's- Quick question.
1: I mean, it's going back to what you said about, you know, the child's like, well, you know, I know they have to love me, but they don't like me. And I, I equate that to, I look at, how I guess the love I guess maybe mother, but maybe both parents, are, especially if you get, you know have a guy that's not a deadbeat dad. But just as we are, I think look at we don't like the behavior in other people that are doing things that are sinful, even in ourselves. But I think the intrinsic nature within our human nature, as far as being parents, like me being a parent. That yes, I will dislike everything my son does wrong relative to not living right, ordered or right-minded. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean that I would negate that. I would not love him anymore. Oh yeah. And, I, and, I, and then you know you equate that to how God looks. I mean, as many times as we screw up, in, in, in mercy that we get to go back to Him. And i you know people that are on death row, who's there when they're getting executed?
0: The priest. Mom and dad. Mom and dad and the priest, hopefully.
1: Well, yeah, well, yeah. I mean. Well, you know but Teresa Lucicio even said that one time which I found interesting I had and just this is a, a quick issue but this guy was on death row and pan me mm, you, you know what I'm talking about and then did not believe God didn't want any last rights or anything given to him
0: she prayed for and him she
1: prayed for him and he took the cross
0: and, and kissed Christ it yes yeah.
1: and they knew that was that it was changed there so but that's what I'm saying is that within the human capacity as far as parents go even in that situation they still show up
0: Oh yeah, no, and, so, and it's a tragedy when parents don't show up. When because you have made a choice and you're no longer my child, I can no longer love you. You're not welcome in my home. That's a, a real big issue. Now, granted, we could talk about like, hey, do you, should you be bringing your your boyfriend or girlfriend home? I mean, are you are going to be doing drugs in my house. No, but it doesn't mean I don't love you. It doesn't mean I don't give up on you. And I think particularly. I, when parents don't do it, you as priest will have the part to mediate the, the, the gaze of the father. And so, yes, John. Well, this might be something also you'll get to a little bit later, but
1: you speak more to the, I guess, just the purpose of of all of that mediation when you know God could do a much better job loving someone directly than
0: feels like we can I. I, I That would be a much different class, a whole class. I'm going to say that I think it is a principle written into the Judeo-Christian revelation. That it's just that we can look at it. God has chosen to do it this way. We know that. If we believe in revelation, he's chosen to do it that way. Culminating A, in the Son of God becoming man, taking on a body. There's an incarnational aspect to it. And then continuing with the church and uh, the sacraments. So I think the incarnation sort of explains it because, yes, he could just do it directly, but he recognizes, I'm sure Thomas has said this somewhere, he recognizes that we are human embodied creatures. And so this is his way of communicating to us. I'm telling you, in confession, you know, why do I need to go to a priest? Well, I can give you a big explanation why you need to go to a priest, but there... If you just go to God, please forgive me. I can tell you, you will encounter people who say they've asked for God's forgiveness, but they don't feel forgiven. They need to hear the words. Well, how else are you going to hear the words? Unless the shekinah the cloud descends upon you and the voice comes and tells you. When you hear it from that representative, mediated, um, It's just the principle of mediation that, that, that at least in our faith, is, is, is a central principle. Let's continue. The problem is, though, when we don't get it, and we're going to look at this a lot more next week, particularly when we're young, it can have devastating effects. We know this from psychology, the importance of being loved as a child, and the impact, even words, the smallest things of abuse and neglect, and it can lead to, to some self-destructive behavior down the line and so even as we get older we didn't we, none of us received the love we really needed to receive and so we need we have particular ways we can receive love and we do get it through other people i think Jacques philippe's quote sort of assumes that and it's something that conrad bars did write a lot about bars is b-a-a-r-s and he has his book called born only once i don't know if we have it in the library and his, 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 his argument is, we should be born twice. And he's not talking about on a human level. One is you're born that you, you come by your mama. And that's born once. The second is an emotional and psychological birth where we are affirmed. And of course, none of us were loved perfectly and so it seems that it can lead as we'll see to shame of not seeing ourselves as lovable of being unaffirmed individuals so listen to what conrad Boris has to say about that and this is from his book born only once unaffirmed individuals can be said to have been born only once their second or psychological birth never took place they were like prisoners locked in lonely Locked in, lonely and self-centered, waiting for someone to come and open the door of their prison, waiting to be open to their own goodness and that of others. Again, we're going to look at shame um, a little bit later on. Hold on a second. We're going to look at that a little bit later on next week. Um, But I want to give you this quote from that sort of echoes the same thing, and it is also from Balthazar, who says the same thing. Many wait only for someone to love them in order to become who they always could have been from the beginning. So we all need to be received. We all need to be loved. And the Lord is going to often use others to do it. And that great tragedy ratzinger talks about it in that little that thing that i had you read of not only believing that it's not good that you're alive but that it's not good that existence is here at all that's the despair that leads to suicide but we're going to see more about that in trauma and abuse and the truth is as we get older this is so important for parents and as priests to encourage parents to build up trust to not shame to really affirm their child's existence. I love you, not just in words, but indeed. To be able to get that type of love when we get older is difficult. Ideally, the ideal place to receive it is from your spouse. You know, that's, I think, we talk about the, the incarnational mediated principle. Your spouse is there to constantly remind you that God loves you. It shouldn't be that They're there constantly to remind you you're doing something wrong. That becomes a problem, but it often happens. But there are very few people who can do it. That that, that full, complete receptivity that a parent can can give to a child. Adults have a hard time because as you grow up, you're more wounded. Maybe they don't have the capacity to love us totally in our brokenness, to see it through. And then as we get older, babies have No problem allowing themselves to be loved. Why? Because they're just babies. They're just sitting there. They allow themselves to be received. But when you get older, nope. You learn that. Nope. I don't want it. I'm going to hide. It's shame. So we don't take the risk because we've been hurt, and we don't want to be hurt again. So there's that lack of vulnerability. But if, as we get older, if we have our own wounds, and we allow the Lord put someone in our life, Like he said, it could be a priest, a coach, a teacher, whatever, who sees us and loves us and cares for us, then things can begin to change. And when you received it, you don't forget it. And I could tell you stories of people uh, in my time at UL. We had over the years there a couple of students who were exceptional at loving other people. Exceptional. And... uh, you ask the students who came through, who changed your life the most? It would be nice sometimes if they said me, but mostly it was other students because they were there with them most of the time. And the stories of encountering certain ones of them, of just being received, being loved, being seen, their lives were put on a completely different trajectory. It's one who was crying outside of the chapel I had a rough time, and this other student saw it, boom, and received them. Completely changed it. Completely changed it. And I think that's a part of what helps to form a, a great community. In a parish, wife, you can see other people. You're not just neglecting them. But there are certain people who are just really good at this. Mother Teresa, really good at it. Um, others have this great sensitivity. And, and granted, there could be a spiritual level to it, but there can also be a human level where it comes from us being integrated people being affirmed, and therefore, what happens is, unlike shame, where we hide our emotions or these different neuroses, we are able to have a proper integration of our emotions. I, that's the thing like, you could be unaffirmed and you could be traumatized, and your brain will still generally work, your mind, you'll perceive, you may perceive certain things are good that are not, your will as we'll see, can be constrained, but it's the emotions that are really affected. It can be all over the place, particularly suffering from what we would call emotional dysregulation. But the healthy person who's been affirmed, ideally as a child and has continued to live in the presence and, and, and know that they're loved and they're lovable, is able to balance the head and the heart. They don't repress their emotions. They don't overintellectualize things. And it's a sign of someone who's got their garbage together. They got their crap together. They have compassion, poignancy, empathy. They feel things. They display their emotions. They're able to talk about them. I'm not saying that you can't talk about stuff that's intellectual, but like there's a person who can't verbalize or can't share their emotions or can't understand them. It's a problem. Part of the problem is is that so often I, I think we have a limited vocabulary, and that's why I put that stuff that Brene Brown's been doing, which I think is is generally insightful. Her Atlas of the Heart. You know, how do you feel? I feel good. Well, can we can we can we nuance that language a little bit? It's like it's like. Let's go back to say to uh, SNL. Tonto, Tarzan, and Frankenstein. Bread, good. Fire, bad. This is again for men, y'all. This is basically our emotional language. How are you feeling? Good. How are you feeling? Tired. Okay. And maybe that's the way that society evolved. We don't. I'm not. I'm not going to say that we we have fewer hormones that affect our emotions. I think I told you this. I read this article about this guy who did this transgender surgery, and he's before he did it, he started taking hormones, unless estrogen. And he started really wanting to watch rom-coms and crying at movies and stuff. And he's like, I never did this before. Why am I crying at this movie? Well, estrogen kind of makes you do that. Testosterone makes you a little tough, but it doesn't mean that guys can't cry. There's a chemical aspect to this. But we need to be able to have access to the full range of emotions to talk about them. So this is my theory. This is where, this is where I'm driving at. And, and I've had many wonderful discussions about this. So let's talk about our emotional lives. I think Brene Brown gives like 84 different emotions. But instead of talking about them using specific emotions, to help us understand this, and this is just like the healthy range of emotions, we're going to talk about something kids love to do. Color. Remember when you were a kid, you had your crayon box. Your crayons. First started off, you had your eight crayon box and then you had your 24 crayon box, and then you add your 64, and then now there's 152 crayon box, all these different colors. So our emotional lives, my theory is, is like crayon boxes. So the question you got to ask yourself is, and the crayons are all the different colors, like, you know, all your sad emotions or your blues and your blacks and your happy emotions or your reds and your yellows, whatever. What what what? How many crayons do you have in your box? Serious? Like uh, like uh, I work with college students, college girls, 152 all the time, plus the neon pack, <laughs> them, and the pencil sharpener. Not all girls, but they do. So so most. If you ask most guys, what well, how many would you say y'all have in your pack? <laughs> well, we'll be to say, like, hey, I think sometimes guys, it's like when you go to the restaurant, you get the three-pack. Uh, you know, red, blue, green. You know, but 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 is this how it's supposed to be? Is it possible that for, for, for guys, particularly for priests, for all people, we should have a bigger pack of colors? Now, some people are, maybe are going to be content with their 24-pack. Some people do 52, but here's the thing. Let's say everybody in here has a 64 pack. The question is, do you use all the colors? Remember that, like you you, you have your your crayon pack, and then some of them would be little nubby ones, but like your periwinkle, you never use because you're a guy. I'm not going to use periwinkle. You know, I'm not going to use pink or, or salmon. Which are the ones that you go to the most? Just because you go to this most, I think sometimes we think, well, because I go to these 10 the most, that's all I have. You could have a lot more, but you just never use them. And so this is part of, like, you know, I've done a lot of spiritual direction with guys and girls over the years, uh, vocational discernment. If you're going to have to color with somebody, let's say it's time to color party. You're going over to your friend's house. You're going to want to color. Have a good time. Do you want to hang out with your friends who got the restaurant three pack? Do you want to, what, with the one who's got the eight pack, but half of them are broken? You don't even know what color it is? Or do you want to call it with a person with a 152 pack? What do you want to work with? You want to call with a person with a 152 pack. So that's why it's so nice. Like, okay, because you, like, I'm going to tell you, you start doing spiritual direction, like, for, for girls and for women, but you better put two hours there because. Yes. You're gonna got a lot of colors to color with, guys. I can be done in about 20 minutes. It's like hearing confessions at a retreat. Talk about that. Like men's retreat, 80 men. I'm done in about three hours. Women's retreat, ladies, please be merciful to me. Please be merciful to me. I just need your sins, kind of number. I don't need your husband's sins. I don't need your kid's sins. I don't need the whole story behind it. But, but again, for spiritual direction, it's fun. You know, like hey, we have all these colors. We can get deep. We get to the heart. So but are sometimes maybe our colors missing are we able to have other people teach us oh this is how you use this color so i i think that there is something there about having a wide range of colors then you just oh i don't want to call this color because i can't stay in the line well There's got to be a full range of emotions, and I think particularly an emotionally well-balanced person is going to be able to use all the colors. They may emphasize, they may prefer certain bright colors, I prefer the darker colors, whatever. That could be your disposition. But you've got to be able to use them. You have to have access to them. But as we're going to talk about it, it's scary because, oh, what if they don't like my picture? What if they don't want to color with me? So this is a fun way, maybe, of of trying to explain things. But yeah, feeling emotions, we could be scared if we manifest them. We need priests, particularly who are going to be able to feel with people who suffer, who can laugh with people who are happy, who are not afraid to show emotions. And, And this is something that we'll talk about, like, Jacques-Philippe talks about it. St. Paul uses very emotional language. You can't be a priest who doesn't show affection. You can't be that priest. You, of course, boundaries are always important, you know, but father who is just stuck behind the altar all the time, or father who's the business person, or always in a suit, and, and who doesn't feel. But when you do a funeral, or you're with people, if like, when you have to do a funeral for a kid who's dead, and if you don't cry, you got to be the strong person, but if it doesn't affect you, whoa, we've got a real problem. And there are going to be times it's all right to be angry, but you can't be the priest who's pissed off all the time. You're going to alienate people. Why are you so angry? you got to be able to have boundaries to set. Oh, this is not going to happen to the parish today, but I still love you. But it goes back to what we talked about, dealing with your own stuff. And not being afraid to have an emotional life and to allow this. Because like, yeah, there's an injustice that happened. My anger will be able to go in that direction. Oh, someone's hurting. My empathy, my sorrow can go and help them and support them. But I think that's the point. We can sit and talk about how emotions are involved in the moral choices, which we'll do after the break. But if your will or your emotional life is stunted or you're afraid to display them, Well, then we got a real problem. So as much as, yes, most priests tend to be INTJ or INTP, we're thinkers, it doesn't mean you're not feelers. And and, and I think, as we talked about, this retreat into hyper-intellectualization of things is often a display of some deeper wounds. Maybe there's anger there that you need to deal with. Maybe there's a deep sadness that you haven't dealt with. I don't think you need to emote from the pulpit. I'm not saying that's the place to do it. Um, But it does. As we know ourselves and we know what we're capable of, we're able to set boundaries. Our ability to say no to other people is often our ability to say yes to ourselves. To be able to say yes to yourselves. And that ultimately leads to a a self-acceptance. This is where we're going to kind of land this plane. And this is the part from Jacques Philippe. Hold on a second. All right. This is who I am. These are my strengths. These are my weaknesses. This is my emotional life. This is my background. This is my family of origins. I ain't nothing I can do to change it. And so we've got to be able to have some self-acceptance, particularly of our weaknesses. Father Philippe, from the passage that I gave you, what often blocks the action of God's grace in our lives, this is where the supernatural organism we'll talk about next week becomes important, is less our sins or failings than it is our failure to accept our own weakness. All those rejections, conscious or not, of what we really are or of our real situation. I'm happy, I'm sad, I'm angry, whatever. We refuse to admit that we have this defect, that weak point, were marked by this event, fell into that sin. And so we block the Holy Spirit's actions since he can only affect our reality to the extent we accept it ourselves. And that's such a key point that you're not going to find in Thomas or in Gary Lagrange or in, in Pius XII. The Spirit can work, but if you don't accept yourself, if you hate yourself, if you're living in denial, it's not going to work. The Holy Spirit never acts unless we freely cooperate. You will find that in all of them. We must accept ourselves just as we are. If the Holy Spirit is changes for the better, this is great, perfecting, elevating nature. But it comes from what we talked about with the, 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 the Sermon of the Mount. It comes what we talked about with St. Paul. Hey, we're not perfect. Sometimes we have good days, sometimes we have bad days. Because people who have a hard time accepting themselves have a really hard time accepting others. If you can't accept others' weaknesses, if you're judgmental, if you're constantly gossiping, if you're constantly putting other people down, ding, 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 red flag, you got a problem, bro. You can't accept yourself. Yeah, that's one thing that I kind of realized when I was reading, because always read,
1: like, you should love your neighbor as yourself That's like, a command. Like, you must love your neighbor as yourself. But now the way I read
0: it is like, the way you love yourself determines the way you love your neighbor. Absolutely. So it's like it's not like a
1: command. It's just like that's just like the way it is. Mm-hmm. So like so someone
0: loves others. You know. And so it's all about a growth in self-knowledge, not only of our weaknesses, but our strengths, too. I, I often will try to tell married couples before they get married, go take these personality tests. Know yourself and how you love or how you work with other people, like the little working genius test or your your MMPI or whatever, the Myers-Briggs, these are all really important. And so if we are not affirmed, particularly as priests, you're not going to affirm others. It's not going to work. So this is why I say the psychological basis of the moral life, that we're not just body and soul, that there's an emotional life. There's a psychological dimension to who we are that also needs to be regulated. Not that we're reducing it, like in the 70s, to psychology. We still have reason and will, as we're going to see, but there has to be an integration of all the faculties and a lot of what we've come to understand about counseling and therapy, particularly, as we'll see, dealing with trauma, is important. We're going to look at that next week. Here is basically self-knowledge, self-acceptance, and a healthy integration of our intellect, will, and emotions, and living an affirmed life so that we can affirm others, capiche? All right, let's take a break for 10 minutes and we'll be back.